Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for gathering us here once again. And Lord, we thank you for a word, a gospel, a faith that is best heard, announced, and proclaimed and heralded because it is not the faith of those who think they can save themselves or of believing a philosophy, Lord, but it is news, events that you have done in history. So Lord, as your gospel is now proclaimed and heralded as news, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would respond the way that sheep respond to the voice of a good shepherd, especially the shepherd who has already died for their sins. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Now, last week, we read of uh, most, one of the most terrifying scenes that has ever been seen by human eyes. One of the most terrifying scenes ever seen by human eyes. So you've got Ornan the Jebusite, and he's at his threshing floor, and he's doing it during a severe epidemic, massive epidemic. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying every day. He's got his four sons with him. And then the king of Israel, their Messiah, little M, their representative before God, he then pays Ornan a visit. And it's clear that this is no ordinary visit. The king's face would not have allowed Ornan to think that this is a ordinary visit. This was very serious. And then the Lord opens Ornan's eyes to see what David's eyes, his king, what David's eyes had already seen. This is the reason why King David came to visit him. So Ornan saw the angel of the Lord between heaven and earth with the sword of God's wrath lifted up in the air, hanging over all Jerusalem, over his land, over him, over his boys. Now his sons, Ornan's sons, were terrified and they hid themselves. But like their ancestor Adam tried to hide using a fig leaf, it didn't work. Whatever pile of wheat that he tried to hide behind did nothing to protect him from the real danger that he was facing the sword of the Lord for his sin. This, of course, was the reason why the Lord had actually sent David, the anointed king, the Messiah of Israel, to hurry to Ornan's threshing floor and to make sure to put an altar and a sacrifice under the sword of the Lord before it fell on Jerusalem, on Ornan and his four strapping lads as well. Because this is where the Lord's anger and justice for his beloved people's sin would fall. That's where. So this is where the atonement for sin had to be made. A sacrifice is punished, killed, destroyed, and crushed instead of God's people. And that's where God is identifying as he's hovering that sword up in the air. He's identifying where the sacrifice for the sins of his people would take place. And so that is where 
God has identified where the temple would be built. But this is not just a courtroom, just where justice is done. The temple is also a house. It's meant to be a household as well. So God's desire to, for atoning for Israel's sin, for paying for Israel's sin, for forgiving Israel's sin, that desire was not merely that they could just be forgiven, but that they'd also enjoy the benefits, the results of being forgiven. And that is the gift, the unfathomable, uncountable gift of being in his presence actually being in his family, reconciled to him as his dearly beloved children. And so that's why the temple was to be built. A place where forgiveness for sins was accomplished, but also where forgiveness of sins could be enjoyed. And so a place where God's glory as the just and holy and righteous God is shown and known but also a place where his glory for being the God who's also the justifier and lover and forgiver of sinners is shown. And so the temple was to be a place where the justice and mercy and love of God would be on full display. The glory of his love and the glory of his justice shown and known. His character on full display in this location more than any other on the earth, Ornan's land. So that brings us to our first point today. And that is the son of David is given innumerable treasures to build the temple. The son of David is given innumerable treasures to build the temple. So the Messiah, the Christ, now little m, little c, the anointed king of Israel was their representative, and he was the one through whom God would choose to deal with Israel. Remember, when Israel sinned, he focused his attention on the obedience of David rather than just destroying Israel. He sends the tempter to David. Now, God, through David, is making this temple possible. We've seen this already. David's sword already established Jerusalem, Mount Zion, as the stronghold for God's people by demolishing the enemy's stronghold. There we saw this. He used his sword to do that, and God told him to do that. He brought peace to the land through the sword. And he establishes the land of the Lord. He brought the ark of God to Jerusalem. We saw that already. And so David f- wishes to fulfill his duties to, repl- to place, re- replace the tent temple and put a true and solid and permanent temple there. But David is told by God, no, not you. You will not build the temple. It's going to be a son of David that God is going to use to build that glorious temple. And so now we see it's not just any son. We have a name now. It's Solomon, or his other name is Jedidiah who's going to build this glorious temple, fulfilling the Messiah responsibility. And to the son of David would be assigned innumerable treasures to build that temple. Let's pick it up in 1 Chronicles 22. Got your Bible? Verse 1. We're going to read the first 16 verses. 1 Chronicles 22, 1 to 16. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. 
David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Then he charged for Solomon his son and char- he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, "My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the, to, to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, "You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest." I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in all his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only... May the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. A hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. To these you must add, you have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number. Skilled in working, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. So before the temple is ever made, the treasures which will make up the temple are already assigned. Many of them are already piled up, and the rest are assigned for him to collect. And they are, did you catch it? Innumerable. How many times did that come up? Can't count it. How much? Can't count it. How much? A lot. How much? Too much. Great quantities beyond weighing incredible wealth assigned for the building of the temple. Why? This temple is meant to show a sliver of 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 a sliver sliver of the glory and beauty of the presence of the Lord God of Israel. It's meant to represent the sweetness and all-surpassing worth and value of being the people whose sin has been paid for so that they could be in the presence of the living God. How valuable is it to be in God's presence and have your sin atoned for? That comes kind of close to say how valuable that is to be in God's presence. To compare the wealth and dignity of all that life could bring The praise of men, long life, health, physical pleasure like food and romance. And then to say that none of these things compares with the wealth and worth of knowing the Lord as your redeemer and have your sins not count against you 
so that you can delight in his presence rather than being crushed by it. A hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver is a lot. You might even say it's exorbitant. It's too much. It is more than enough. And the point here is that Solomon is going to run out of space in the temple before he runs out of gold and silver to put in it. Now, whether or not a million talents of silver were used in the building of the temple, the point is that even if a million talents were needed, there would be no lack to build it. And I think the point here is also that whatever the glory of the temple would finally be, this big, shining, priceless building, it would not even come close to demonstrating the surpassing worth of being in the presence of a holy God with your sins forgiven and be brought in as an heir of God rather than a rebel. When you meet the Lord with his arms stretched, outstretched toward you in his temple, that they are outstretched in an embrace rather than a punishment. Brothers and sisters, compare this with your treasures. For all the wealth that you may have, I think you'd have to admit that it is less than the wealth described here. Whatever treasure you have right now is dung compared to this. Be it health or good looks or intellect or property or the praise of men or a massive bank account. It's also true of all those earthly things which you even would aspire to, those things that you don't even have now. Yeah, what I have now isn't that valuable, but the things I long for are Nope. Whatever you hope even to accomplish or accumulate in this life, whatever the final tally you could possibly get to, it will most certainly be less than this. And part of the purpose of the temple was for Israel to shake them out of the love of earthly things, earthly treasures, and to make those Stupid aspirations look puny and embarrassing in comparison with the beauty of God and the treasure of belonging to him and knowing him and being in his presence. And you are constantly bombarded with the subtle lies that just about anything is of greater worth or even close to the glory of knowing the Lord God of heaven and earth being a famous YouTuber or TikToker or hockey player is a pile of dung compared to this. And you're a fool if you have set your heart on these things in such a way that even competes with knowing God. If you're making sacrifices to your holiness or trimming off some of the ways that you would know and grow in your knowledge of God in order to build up those goals, you are a fool who will one day be brought to tears that you did that. And if you're a parent enabling or encouraging kids in that goal, you are worse than that. Now, if God is gracious, you're going to cry those tears of regret before you meet him face to face so that you can repent. 
But you will one day see that, that this was not only wrong, but foolish and wicked. To give up some of the ways that you know the Lord in order to, get, to gain some of those lesser things that the world counts as treasures. Now that can be saying, that can be said of conventional careers as well. Whether it's construction or engineering or medicine or teaching or land ownership or business. To allow those things to compete with the way that you treasure the glory of knowing God is utter foolishness. See, that's why James, in his letter, he tells the church that the rich can honor God by acting as if, truly acting and feeling, as if their wealth is garbage compared to the wealth of knowing God. But the poor can honor God in not being ashamed of their poverty because they are too overwhelmed with the wealth and sweetness and treasure of being exalted by the Lord God. We see this in James 1, 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the effect that that exorbitant, glorious, golden temple was to have on the people of Israel. That as the wealthy walked in, they'd feel poor. And as the poor walked in, they'd feel rich in comparison to what God has provided them in giving them a temple to enjoy the glory of God. Solomon is the second Messiah on this permanent throne. David the first. And he had his treasures for the temple assigned and set out for him. We just saw this. Here's what you got. Now his assignment was clear. What Solomon accomplished in part was a shadow, a preview and a glimpse of what the Messiah was supposed to accomplish. What Solomon accomplished in part building a sweet and glorious and priceless temple for his people to enjoy the glory of God. As the second Messiah, what he accomplished in part, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last and great and final Messiah, he would accomplish in fullness. Now, Solomon's temple was great and glorious and beautiful. There's no doubt. It was a good gift from God to his people through his anointed. But Jesus' temple was more glorious and more beautiful. For the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ was his own body. The Son of God, eternally existing, he took on human flesh. He became a man, and in that temple, in his body, in that location, physical location, he received the punishment for the sins of the people of God. In his body, he was taken to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, the land which Ornan once owned. That land was once purchased by Jesus' ancestor, David, at great cost. He's taken to that, sword, to that location, and there the sword of God was not stayed by putting it back in a sheath, but by falling on him in fullness instead of his people. And he provided this forgiveness 
in the ability to know the glory of God at great cost, at a greater cost than David paid or Solomon paid. And that's why the Apostle Paul would not disagree if you said that there was great worth in being found in Solomon's temple, Paul would agree there was great value in being found in Solomon's temple. But he would say that can't compare to the worth of being found in Christ's temple and being found in Christ. And we read this in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Those who repent and believe in the sacrifice of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead on the third day, and they trust that this pays for, the free, for and frees them from sins, you are in Christ. The same way that Solomon arranged those treasures in the temple that he built, so the Lord Jesus, he... He adds those treasures. He assembles those treasures into the temple he's building, which is the church. There was a multitude of gold and jewels and silver assembled to raise up Solomon's temple. But the Lord Jesus assembles, and by the way, that literally means church, a great multitude, too great to number, to build a temple of surpassing worth. And that cost, which was to be added to his temple, cost him his life. And so if you've heard the gospel of Jesus, the good news of what he did to save sinners, and if you believed and you've repented of your sins, you have been added by faith to his temple. The book of Revelation tells us that we are not just in his temple, we are part of it like pillars never to be moved. All the other treasure in the world is garbage compared to that. That brings us to our second point. The place and man chosen by God for the temple's building would be marked by rest. So I wonder if you noticed the reason why David was forbidden to build the permanent temple. Remember, it was his reign, though it had been great and good, it was marked with struggle and strife and war and bloodshed. It had not been marked by rest. And that's the reason why God says, you shall not build that temple. You see that in verses 6 through 10. You shed much blood, wage great wars. But, my, but, but verse 9, behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. So let's be very clear here. David was not forbidden from building the temple because his reign was sinful. It wasn't because the wars he fought and the blood that he shed was sinful for him to do it. David did those things at God's command. It was part of his responsibility as the Messiah to 
secure peace even through the edge of the sword. This is God making a point. First thing he's saying by this is that this office, the role, the shoes of the Messiah were never ones that David could actually fill. Even if David was perfectly faithful, he still wouldn't be able to fulfill the shoes of the Messiah. And implied here as well is also that Solomon wouldn't. Solomon, even if he fulfilled his, his role as Messiah, he did it perfectly, he'd still not be able to fulfill the roles of Messiah. It would be something that neither of them had big enough feet to fill. God is training his people to long for a Messiah greater than David, greater than Solomon. But he's also making a greater point. And that's the reign of the Messiah, the temple builder, would be one where his people would enjoy rest. Every person who's added to Solomon's reign would enjoy rest. All of the people of God, the covenant people of God, would have great rest and peace under Solomon. Solomon's reign was temporary, though. And the peace that Israel enjoyed during his reign was only temporary. Israel divided immediately after his reign into two nations that kept fighting against each other. Now that rest and peace was sweet, and it was good, and it was real. God provided rest through his Messiah, but it was only temporary. You know who knew that very well? The people who were first reading this book, the returned exiles. You didn't need to tell them that the rest and peace that Solomon had accomplished or that Solomon reigned through was temporary. They knew it was temporary. Which meant that they would turn their eyes and wait for a Messiah who would bring permanent rest. Rest from what? Yes, rest from their enemies, but there is a greater rest. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. They were looking forward to a greater rest. There still remains a Sabbath, one that we haven't seen yet. And Jesus Christ is that rest. And so what rest does the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it characterized by? First we see is it's rest from the law. Rest from the law. Now the law of, good, of God is good and sweet, but that law stood against them as a witness of their guilt. The law of God showed and exposed their guilt. And even the sacrifices, the fact that the sacrifices had to keep going over and over and over and over and over again. There was no rest from the law's demands and no rest from the sacrifices needed saying your sin is not yet paid for, but it will be. Your son is not yet paid for, but it will be. Your sin is not yet paid for, but it will be. And so the Lord Jesus Christ satisfies this and brings rest from that. Where the sins of God's people, the forgiveness of, of their sins was enjoyed on credit in the Old Testament. This will be paid for, this will be paid for, this will be paid for. The forgiveness enjoyed in the New Covenant is one that is paid for by debit. This was paid for. This was paid for. And so your conscience, if you are in Christ, can be at rest. 
You can have all the accusations of the law and of the devil coming at you and saying, this man is guilty, this woman is guilty, this, this girl is guilty. And yet we look to Christ who said, I paid for her sins. But it's also a rest from sin and a rest from unbelief. Israel had once been in slavery in Egypt and they were enslaved. They were doing things that, that they, it wasn't just that they were in, Israel, in Egypt, they were slaves to it. And so those apart from the gospel of Jesus are actually slaves to sin. Slaves to a master that is not a good master. Now we may crave sin and our hearts love sin and that we're enslaved to it, but it's not a good master. We keep thinking that master is going to provide us rest and joy and peace. And time and time again, sin and our own sinful hearts prove that it's not a good master who provides rest. And so the Lord Jesus, through his gospel, his death and resurrection, provides rest from sin and unbelief. And this means that though we are freed from keeping the law in order to earn our favor with God, it means now that we're free to keep the law, set free from the master of sin, and now given to the Lord Jesus Christ to glad obedience to his law. He is a good master, and his law is good. It is freedom. That brings us to our third point. The Messiah and his under-shepherds must be courageous and keep the word of the Lord. The Messiah and his under-shepherds must be courageous and keep the word of the Lord. So you have the law of God, the word of the Lord, and courage. You see these things. Solomon and those who lead under his leadership are charged to be courageous and keep the word of God. Let's see this in verses 11 to 13. We're going to read that again, 11 to 13. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. Let's go to 17 and 19, because we see these are also given to those who are Solomon's under-shepherds. He the shepherd, they the under-shepherds. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people." Now set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. Why would this take courage? Solomon and the under-shepherds, the Messiah and his under-shepherds, this is going to take courage to keep the word and the law of God. Why would this take courage? How brave do you have to be to build a temple if you got a million talents of silver sitting there? Because it had to be done hand in hand with leading God's people and it had to be done according to the wishes, desires, and commands 
of the Lord, which are in opposition to the desires of hearts and his people's enemies. Now, theologians have helpfully identified three enemies, the three main kind of opposition to the church. You maybe remember this from maybe teaching when you were a kid. There's three enemies of the church. What is that? The world, the devil, and our flesh. That's why it takes courage. So let's look at the world. Israel has already seen this as an enemy. Before the reign of Solomon, enemies who hated the Lord and who therefore hated his people because they were called by his name. They hated God's laws. They hated Israel for keeping his laws. They hated the glory of God and how the glory of God exposed the false glory of their idols. How the glory of God showed that their glory and their false glory of their false idols was like dung. Compared to the Lord, idols are dung and garbage, and so they hated the glory of God. The glory of God also exposed their sin. The law of God exposed the sin of the people around them. And that's why the people of God were always hated and pressured by the people around them. And the returned exiles, first hearing this account here, they're no strangers to the hatred of the world. The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple meant fierce and merciless and cruel and deceitful opposition, which opposition, by the way, they could have avoided by allowing others to help them build in a way that God had forbidden. It took courage to say, we will build this only as the Lord has demanded. So Solomon and his under-shepherds were charged to be courageous in keeping the law while leading the people and building the temple. We also see the devil is an enemy of the people of God. He's real and he hates the Lord. He hates the Lord's laws. He hates the Lord's people. And so he rouses up the church's enemies and he brings temptations to her people and to her leaders. Now, I want you to realize that the devil has no actual power to stop the success of the Messiah to build the temple. But he intimidates and he threatens. But his threats and intimidation cannot actually harm the church. As Luther sang with his buddy Philip, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. One little word shall fell him. And by that one little word, Luther was talking about the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean Satan is defeated by yelling the gospel at him. No. Don't talk to Satan. Satan is defeated when the church hears the gospel, not when Satan hears the gospel. Of the reign, the glory, and majesty, the wrath of Christ and his sacrifice for his people and his resurrection from the dead. That's when the devil is defeated, when the church hears the word of the gospel. So preach the gospel to yourself and to your church. Look look them in the eyes and tell them it is finished. It is paid in full. When they are tempted to treat the glories of the world and the treasures of the world as something that competes with the glory of knowing Christ, look them in the eyes and tell them how glorious Christ is. Tell them of the future of the world and how it will be destroyed. 
and then tell them about how Christ, their Savior, loved them and gave his life up for them. Tell them there's no condemnation for those who are found in Christ. That does bring us to the third enemy, and that is the flesh. And this is perhaps the worst. The sinful flesh of the church has proved to be her greatest enemy over the years. The greatest need for courage for her leaders. Because that makes the attacks of Satan in the world actually effective. Remember that it was not the hatred of Satan or the hatred of the Babylonians that sent Israel into captivity. It was her own sinful flesh that got her sent into exile. They lacked courage to keep God's laws when they were mocked for keeping God's laws. Some of the laws that they were mocked and pressured to reject were this. God's laws against idolatry. God's God's laws about sexual sin. God's laws about murdering your own babies. Those were the attacks that Israel was faced with and felt that pressure to give up God's laws because the nations of the world were saying, murder your own babies, engage in sexual sin, enjoy idolatry. And Israel lacked courage to keep God's laws. And so their own sinful flesh drove them to reject God's laws and demand that her leaders say, we want to get rid of God's laws. And the leaders didn't have courage to say, we will keep God's laws. And so you must take courage in the Lord and refuse to be a man or a woman of fear. Or you're going to be intimidated by the threats of the world or the demands of people within the church. So if you're afraid of people in the world hating you or calling you a danger to society or an immoral person, if you're afraid that of that, you're going to be inclined to dishonor God and his commands, his beautiful design of life in the womb, his beautiful design of creating humanity with two genders, each assigned by his design for our bodies. His beauty designed the commands of a permanent marriage between a man and a woman to be the only sexual expression and enjoyment. His commands to not assign guilt or glory to a person simply because of the color of their skin. This is a hatred of the law and design of God. And it is a rebellion against his lordship. And it's also a fear of man or poverty or shame that will make it impossible to stand firm. Now, it also takes an equal amount of courage to resist the desire of yourself to add to God's perfect law. Leaders, it takes courage from people demanding in God's name or demanding in the church's name that which God in his wisdom and he has not Uh, and his wisdom of perfection has not commanded the church. Adding to God's laws or taking away from them are equal sins, and it is the sin of not keeping the law of God. And it shouldn't surprise us that it will take courage from the leaders of the church because it took courage from the leaders of Israel, it took courage from the leaders of the early church to stand stand against both of those attacks on God's word. And so it's particularly sad and terrifying 
when the leaders of the church are the ones most fearful of the world and of the sinful desires that remain in their churches. Which is why we read 2 Timothy today. A perfect exhortation to the leaders of a church to be courageous and to build the church only as the word of God has designed it. It will take courage. And the courage, the cure, sorry, for that fear of the world, the fear of the devil, and the fear of the desires of even the church is remembering what David and Ornan and his four trembling sons saw that day. If you are feeling intimidated and worried about gladly expressing the commands and design of God's, of God's word and his gospel, if you're afraid of standing for that, the cure is by remembering what they saw that day. The sword of the Lord extended over those who had broken his law. But you know, we have an amplified reason for refusing to fear those things. Not only have we seen the wrath of God against sin, we've seen the love of God in standing underneath that sword for us. So we would do well also to remember the fear of God, to remember the love of God, but also remember the uncountable treasure, the unlimited gold and silver provided for Solomon's temple is just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the worth of being found in Christ, of the glory of that and the beauty of that. Then we would not only fear God more than we fear the world, but we would also love the praise and applause and pleasure of God more than the applause of men. So brothers and sisters, think deeply about his righteousness and his holiness and his judgment against sin. And think deeply of how Christ affirmed and loved and fulfilled the law in your place. And think deeply of how this love brought him to, to take the wrath of God for your sin. And you'll be cured of fearing the wrath and hatred of the world against the law of God and against those who keep his word. But also think deeply about the beauty and glory and great worth of being found in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that in your mercy you have provided us a temple, a place to enjoy the presence of a holy God even though we are sinners. Israel would have been and should have been grateful for the glory and gift of Solomon's temple where sacrifices for sins were made and for a place where they can catch a glimpse of and be reminded of the beauty and glory of the God who loves them. But Lord, we're, we're grateful that, that that is not the final and great temple. 
for the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for our sin, and gold and silver could not actually show how great and glorious and beautiful you are. We're grateful that instead you sent your son. We're thankful that he obeyed the law in our place and that he died in our place so that we could be received into the temple, into your presence, to enjoy your beauty and glory and to be satisfied in a way that none of the things of the world can satisfy. And rather than being crushed, be embraced with great affection. Lord, I pray that the vision of those things would make us courageous. It would cause us to love you, your word, your gospel, and your church. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that courage to love you and your church and to build the church according to your pleasure. I pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful and we'd be found in Christ when you return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.